Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of the Fandom Science Podcast. My name is Lou Farah. I'm a sports science PhD student at York University. And my first guest on this show is Dr. Nick Wadi. Nick is a sports scientist at UOIT. He's a um, skill acquisition expert and athlete development expert. I met Nick when uh, he was in his second year as a professor. He was looking for graduate students and um, I don't know what he did to deserve this, but unfortunately for him, I was his first grad student. Uh, he had to put up with a lot, and uh, then he put up with a lot more coming on the show, too. We talked about talent, nature versus nurture, uh, his father-in-law, Bruce, and a lot more. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you do, please give it a like and subscribe below, and tune in for more episodes coming soon in both audio and video. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Ah, cheers. Thanks for having me, Lou. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, Sorry uh, it took so long to uh, to figure out our schedules and stuff. But. No, it's all right. So we actually, like, uh, we try to do this on the night of Game 7, right? Oh, yeah. Leafs uh, versus Bruins. Yeah, and the Raptors and, were playing, too. I think it was yeah. Game 1. No? Game 1 against Cleveland? I don't think it was. I think it was against Washington, right? Oh, you might be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, it was Game 7, and we... Uh, we decided on that day, like, way before, not knowing it's going to be Game 7. The day off, we're like, f*** it. We, <laughs> oh, no, we've got to get out of here. Yeah, there's we no, got to get no out of here. There's no way we can talk about talent and sport and not watch any yeah, sport. Yeah, exactly. So it would have been a disaster. Even though, in hindsight, I'm thinking, our, like, the fact that we bailed that night, I think we, like, jinxed all the Toronto teams, mm-hmm. maybe. Because yeah, it was just a terrible night for everyone. It's just not going well. Maybe because we watched. Yeah, probably because we yeah. watched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I talked a little bit in like the pre-recorded intro on uh, like how we met, the work we did in mm-hmm. my master's and all that, but can you tell us just a little bit about where where you went to for grad school, like what kind of research you do at UOIT? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, after my, my undergrad at Queens, I, um, and I, actually, so that's where I met uh, Joe Baker. Mm-hmm. and uh shout out to joe shout out to joe and uh sean horton and mm-hmm. um and so yeah actually it was it was through um sean's uh phd project at the time that i they asked if i you know if i could help them with their data collection and yeah just kind of that was during my undergrad and um i before then i didn't even think about research or grad studies or anything like that and um, what did you want to do before uh, honestly, no idea. No idea. Abs- Me neither. Like, literally, absolutely no idea. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, like you know, everyone, you know, you go into phys ed, like, so it's, it's for me, it was physical and health education, which is basically now kinesiology. And, um, and yeah, at that point, it was basically gym teacher. Um, yeah. I was in a pre-med program, but let's be honest, my grades exactly. were nowhere near good enough mm-hmm. to get into med school. And uh, yeah, so I got involved in this research project, um, Sean, Sean Horton's PhD, um, like a pilot study. And so I was just helping collect data and, um, and you know, just, just involved in their research meetings. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just so cool just sitting around exactly, and, yeah. and talking about problems and, and trying to figure out solutions and like what, you know, Especially what, what, what can sports, we do? You... His stuff wasn't even so much about sport. It was, his stuff was on like older adults and, um, mm. and aging stereotypes. Um, oh. but it was a really cool study. It was about, you know, like, um, they're priming them like subconsciously with like positive and negative primes. And then 
and then seeing if it messed up like their physical performance and reaction Is that, time. Uh, legal? <laughs> it was um, so it was so it was all approved by ethics. Okay, okay. Uh, but they had to tell them afterwards that uh, you know, oh, by the way, we kind of yeah. we kind of fibbed to you. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, it's like it's like we were messing with you and we wanted to see what like how it would how how it would happen. And yeah. so, um, and so yeah, it was all fine. It was all it was all above board. But um, nice. but yeah. Anyway, so I met Sean and Joe, and then from there I went and did a um, a master's at York University. Um, and even then I wasn't super involved in, in sport. My, my, you know, my master's project is actually in like epidemiology and like, uh, like oh, right. risk of overweight and obesity and that type of stuff. Hmm. Um, but while I was doing my master's, I started working on some other side projects cause I've always, I mean, I just love sports. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I've been a gym rat and I mean, I'm terrible at all sports I've ever played, but mm-hmm. just love pretty much all sports. And, um, sense fan. Sens fan, yeah, I've got to. We can bleep that out. You can bleep that out. You can just just insert whoever. Yeah, just crop yeah. over my voice with whoever wins the Stanley <laughs> Cup this year. Um, yeah, just love sports, and so started working on a few um, on a few talent related projects in sport and sport expertise mm-hmm. um, during my master's, and then that just kind of you know picked up from there. So when I finished my master's at York in, just bring that up. Just bring that. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Finished my master's at York in, I would say. When, what year was that? 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went over to the UK um, to Leeds, to Leeds Metropolitan University. And so that's, it's now Leeds Beckett University. They've changed names, but um, yeah. I was, Which Leeds game? Leeds United games? Uh, not Leeds United. Managed to get to a Sheffield Derby. So Sheffield mm-hmm. Wednesday and mm-hmm. Sheffield United. Um, that was incredibly violent. Did you, um, were you a hooligan? I was not a hooligan. I was like a terrified, um, (laughs) respectful Canadian apologizing to everyone uh, uh, that I saw at every turn. Uh, No, it was pretty intense. Uh, But yeah, I saw some great sport actually while I was Mm -hmm. over there. Now that you mention it, Um, saw some saw some football, saw uh, rugby league is really popular up there. So they had the Leeds Rhinos. So um, that was just an amazing time. And um, and Headingley, which is kind of a little... um, like uh not suburb but a little kind of sub area of Leeds mm-hmm. in the northern part of the city is um uh, they've got a fairly famous cricket ground there so we'd have all sorts of international uh you know you know test That's matches cool. and in one day matches there um yeah and it was fantastic so uh yeah it was it was in the UK for for a little over 4 years um and yeah just kind of kept the ball rolling on research on talent ID and development in sport yeah. and youth development through sport um, and started branching out in a couple different topics. So, um, so yeah. And then after I was done in the UK, I moved back to Toronto, um, and did a postdoc, um, with Joe and then, um, and yeah, that's kind of where things really picked up in terms of like talent research right. and expertise and, um, writing a few different papers and, and book chapters and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And, uh, and then ended up, yeah, I had some funding for my postdoc, but, um, ended up more or less calling it quits because I got the job at UOIT mm-hmm. um, and yeah and that's kind of how your project started actually because uh-huh. one thing led to another yeah I started a bunch of stuff while I was at yeah. York and then it was yeah so then I started the job and yeah and the work like you've been doing in talent recently because you you and Joe uh, who was my PhD supervisor and then Jorg our colleague in Germany you yep. guys started like a, a model for talent right and uh, but like just from reading it reading other areas of talent like why is talent so controversial like why can't nobody agree on one definition of talent oh i mean not only can no one not only can people not really agree on like one single definition of talent i would argue you know some people argue that there's there's no such thing as talent so it's you know some people think all the way like really far at one end that that talent 
is is the only thing that it's the thing that's going to decide whether or not you're you're going to make it and right. how well you're going to do. And then at the other end, people think, you know, there's there's no such thing as talent. Mm hmm. And, um, that it's, you know, it's basically all the environment and how hard you practice that type of stuff. Um, and then, and then there's kind of, you know, in some, some people in the, in in the, in between, and then the flip side that kind of make it even more complicated. There's some people that think everyone has talent. Oh no. And, oh yeah. Um, I could tell them I don't have talent. Like, well, uh, no, my parents will be the first, my, but ask my dad, he'll be the first one to tell you. Right. I'm a very untalented. Athlete. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, and so, yeah, some people believe that, you know, everyone has talent and then other people believe that mm-hmm. it's, it's a really rare thing that only like a really select few, you know, small percentage of, of the population has talent. Right. Um, so, so even there, there's, there's, there's controversy, there's disagreement. And then, you know, as you were saying, you know, in terms of defining like, what is, you know, what is it like, right. why is it hard to define? Um, yeah, that's, that's been one of the challenges. People find it easier to describe kind of like really, really broadly, like what talent characteristics might be. And, and, mm-hmm. and again, it's an, it's kind of important when we're talking about talent, we're talking about innate talent. Right. So something that at least at some level that you're, that you're born with. Um, and so, but what is it? Like, what does it look like? Um, right. What is it? What's talent in, in one sport versus a different sport? Like it's not what, is, what is it in soccer yeah. versus gymnastics? Right? right. Like, um, and so it's very hard to, to kind of describe. And so, yeah. So the controversy like around it stems from nature versus uh, nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. I mean, that that's definitely one of the things that, that jumps in. So, you know, how much, you know, is it like, is, is your achievement, your performance, is it the result of, of nurture? Is it the environment, how much you practice or is it um, mm-hmm. genetics? And so historically, you know, that argument is, is largely been, has largely kind of split them up that it's, mm-hmm. it's either one or, or it's the other. It's either or. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and arguably that's been one of the things that's, and you know, some people will say, well, that, that argument's dead. It doesn't exist anymore. It's obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say there's still people that believe pretty strongly on, believe. on right. opposite sides. And you can see that, you know, I think there's people in academia who think that, that mm-hmm. they still kind of fall in one camp or the other. Um, but certainly from what I've seen, like online, on Twitter and social right. media, there's practitioners and coaches that are like, you, All know, about- you know, it is, you know, you know, how good you are at, at, at sprinting is 99.99999% like genetically determined and right. right? And so, yeah. so I think, you know, it's easy to say, well, the idea in academics is in academia is dead, but I think it's still, it's still alive. But academia is still, yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to, so we were just going to start with like the nature side and then work our way into nurture. Mm. So where did it start? Did it start from the human genome project? Like the, that's all about genetics and. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. I mean, this is Francis one of my, it's, well, it's one, it's one of my, this is one of the things that now we're going to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I think the idea has been around for, for a really, really long time. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you can find remnants of, uh, of, you know, the belief in nature and, and, um, that you're born with certain dispositions all over the place. So certainly, um, you know, the mapping more recently mapping the human genome has revealed all sorts of interesting things, but arguably it's, it's, it's probably revealed how important the environment is to our genetics Uh and to the expression of genes. But, Mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, then you've got, um, Galton, who who coined the term nature nurture, mm-hmm. um, and who did all these studies on heritability and achievement and kind of eminent people, um, and and yeah, it, it goes back to that. But I would argue, you know, it 
it, you see it all over the place. I mean, so, you know, and it depends on how you interpret things, but, you know, you might see, you know, nature beliefs and, you know, that you're born with, you know, a disposition or something like that. I mean, you can, you know, theoretically see that in all sorts of literary works and historical works. Yeah. Um, you know, the concept of original sin in Christianity is, is a view that you're born with kind of, you True. know, like an innate flaw and, and sin. And, um, and then, you know, you, and you see it in all sorts of other like important literary mm. works and, and, and kind of cultural landmarks. So I think the idea has been around all over the place, um, potentially, you know, going back in ancient Rome and Greece and, um, and, and there's kind of, you know, there's kind of tidal waves of popularity in these different ideas. So, mm -hmm. you know, around Galton's time, it was, it was, it was nature and that was predominating and, you know, you're, it's the family that you're born into and all these types of things. And that was all because of genes. Um, and again, this is very influenced by, um, you know, Darwin's theory on evolution. Um, and then, you know, a little bit later, the behaviorists come in, um, in psychology, in psychology and, and, you know, their beliefs. So guys like you know, Watson and, yeah. and BF Skinner, um, believing that it's all that we're a blank slate, that we are, that it's all the environment that decides who you're going to be and what you're going to be. You know, though Watson's famous for, for even saying, give me, give me any person and I can turn yeah. him into a lawyer, a criminal, anything, right? Like you give me. And so he even said, he made some pretty wild claims about, you know, people should just stop having kids for like, I can't remember what. Yeah. It was. You had some of the hottest years. takes. Yeah. I've and just heard. no more, like let's, let's just stop having mm -hmm. kids so that we can figure it out. And then when we start again, we can go back. We can like, we can, you know, modify the environment and, and make sure that everyone mm -hmm. turns into like who we want to be. So I have like, there's this quote here. The one you mentioned says, give me a dozen healthy infants in my own specified world to bring them up in. And I'll like pretty much I'll turn them into anything I want, like doctors, lawyers, regardless of their talent, yeah. their you know their their race or anything. Yeah. So, which is like okay, like fair enough. We can't go back ninety four years because that's how old the quote is, mm. and like judge people on what we know today. Yeah. But how prevalent is this line of thinking today? Well, I don't know if people are. I mean, he was pretty extreme. Yeah. You know, like he was he was pretty out there and and really kind of forceful in his views, but, uh, mm. uh, but there's certainly people that think, you know, I mean, and this is, you know, things around deliberate practice in sport, you know, mm -hmm. that just, it's how much really hard, effortful and purposeful practice that you do yeah. is, is going to make you a, a, you know, an expert in sport. And that's the only thing there's definitely people that, that, that believe that and that believe that view. So, um, you know, there's, there's certainly anecdotes of soccer coaches, for example, in Australia who are, you know, who are dictating the exact number of, of, uh, of hours of practice for all their athletes so that, you know, they hit 18, they're going to be bang on 10,000 10, hours, right? Yeah. That 10,000 hour or 10 year rule that, um, yeah. that Gladwell popularized. Um, and, 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 you know, and there's things like the, uh, well, what was it called? The, is it the Dan project? No. Um, Anyways, there's a golfer who was just trying to reach 10,000 yes, hours yeah, yeah. Um, and think they would make the PGA Tour and it didn't. didn't yeah, and he so dedicated 10,000 hours of his time yeah. to practice golf. Well, did he have a background in golf? No, no, it was it was more or less from scratch. Um, but he was, yeah, I think he was already, if he wasn't in his late 20s, it would have been like maybe early 30s. I can't remember the exact, I think it's called the Dan Project or the Dan Plan yeah. or something like that. Should be able to find it online. Um, you know, if you had a setup like Joe Rogan, maybe you'd have some staff if I had that, a could, that, could, that could look things up for us yeah. while we were talking. My producer didn't show up today. Yeah. If this was yeah. PTI, the yeah. error <laughs> section of our talk would just be through the roof. Like people will just be like making fun of all the mistakes that I'm saying. Um, Good thing this is not live. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Um, but yeah, the, um, but yeah, there's, there's certainly that view out there. And, um, but again, 
you know, if you go back, I mean, it's, it's easy to criticize viewpoints given, given what we know mm -hmm. now. And, um, and there's some interesting stuff out there that, um, that actually suggests that, you know, if we, if we optimize the environment, if we, if we make the environment amazing for everyone yeah. and, and provide them with all these kind of, um, you know, amazing resources or money instruction, like kind of Watson saying, give me anyone, I can turn them into anything. There's, there's some evidence to suggest that, um, that actually, that actually increases the influence of genetic variation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like there's, um, what's an example, you know, so there's, um, there's some research on heritability. So heritability is just um, take some kind of outcome, IQ, for example, and you look at um, how, mu how much are the differences between different people in a group due to their genetic variation? How much, what percent right. is explained by genetic by variation? Genetic. Yeah. That's heritability. And uh, it's a controversial stat in its own right. But if you look at kids from, from high SES, high, high, like fairly Social wealthy, highly educated parents. If you look at, at that kind of subgroup of the population, then the differences in IQ are, you know, 70% or higher explained by genetic variation. Really? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, you know, you can look at it kind of linearly and, and, you know, if you go to the top end of, of socioeconomic status, then almost everything is a, like a very high percentage is determined by genetic variation. Mm. You flip that around, you look at low socioeconomic status. So, so less affluent, yeah. uh, maybe uh, lower levels of education within families and by in parents. Um, and, and you look at IQ differences and how much is, is explained by genetic variation. And that drops down to like 10%. Mm. So the environment. So even though we're looking at the same outcome, IQ, with the same predictor variable. The genes are still sensitive to the environment. It's still sensitive to the environment. Exactly. So it's not what genes do what. It's what mm -hmm. genes do what in one in environment. environment. And so genes are sensitive to the environment that we're in. And sometimes the influence of the environment can just totally swamp the the potential or the capability that's within like a, a genetic gene, code. Yeah. Um, and so that's just kind of one example, but um, it's an, I think it's a neat example because, you know, it really shows like how, how connected the two are mm -hmm. um, and that it's, you can't really just split them into two separate categories. But we still see like, um, and I've seen those on Twitter a lot, like those companies that are like, hey, send us a DNA oh, yeah. sample or like something and 200 yeah. bucks and we'll tell you whether your kid's going to make it or not. And, yeah. you know, people still fall for that. And oh, yeah. And, and, and actually, I, I can't remember what, um, what news site it was on, but um, you know Tim Caulfield? Have you heard of him? No. He's, a, he's an academic. I can't remember if he's at, uh, in Alberta or Calgary. Anyways, he's, mm. he's a West. Um, and um, he does all sorts of stuff on, on kind of law and history of science. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a really interesting interview about some of those genetic tests. He actually thinks that those are... Um, you know, pretty dangerous things in that they kind of collect them for me. Well, it's kind of like fuel, like it's kind of like throwing fuel on like a, a fire in terms of of talking about like genetic differences between groups and ethnicities and, and oh, quote, un quote unquote okay. races, right? He thinks yeah. that it's kind of taking a step backwards. Um, that's that kind of uh, yeah, mm -hmm. like trace your lineage type stuff. In terms of the sports stuff, I mean, I mean there's loads of position statements out there from academics. Like don't, don't waste your money basically. Right. I mean, you look at something, something like simple, like not simple, but something pretty straightforward, like height, right? Mm -hmm. Like height is huge for so many sports. Like it's, 
Yeah. You know, we will never be seen in the NBA playoffs never. in a million years. Like it no, is just, not even the stands. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, yeah, you know, we can't afford that. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll never be invited by MLSC uh, now. Yeah, uh, this is the, this <laughs> is the end of my that. broadcast career. Um, no. So take something like height, massively important. Mm-hmm. So many different sports, American football, soccer, basketball, obviously rowing. Yeah. It's crucial. Um, we can measure it pretty easily. It's pretty straightforward. It's not complicated. Mm-hmm. We can even measure kids and their peak height velocity and see, all right, you know, and, and anyone who's had kids will know this. You go to your, your checkup with your, your kids and their GP and say, yeah, this is, this is kind of where your kid's on track to be. It's pretty easy to predict, right? right. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but if we're talking about it from like a measurement perspective or from a innate talent perspective, um, there are, there are hundreds of genes and gene variants that influence height, like hundreds. Oh. It's not like one gene that's like, the G- the you flick it on and it's like, sweet, NBA, here I come. It's mm-hmm. hundreds of genes. Not only are there hundreds of them, but they, they can interact with each other, right? And, so, mm-hmm. and they can interact in, in, in multiplicative ways. So like the, it's not just like one plus one is two. Right, like if they're multiplying together and adding up. Exp- they can add up. What do you mean? It's multiplicative, not not additive. So it's it's not just it's not just a matter of more of the genes is better. Uh-huh. It's sometimes the interaction between the genes and which ones are are, are kind of um, having a role in interacting with each other. Um, mm. And so so that's that's height. Like that's just right. height. Like and that's one simple. Like, yeah, and that's and you know and and I think we could we probably. You know, for a lot of sports, you'd argue that that something like height is super important to performance. Yeah. Um, but is height talent? Like, right. is right. and again, this comes back to your previous question: What is talent, and why is there so much controversy about it? You know, is it just how big you are, how tall you are? You know, I think you could argue it's is it it might be necessary, but is it sufficient to mm-hmm. just be big? You know, is that all that there is to talent? It's probably an important part, but is it everything? Probably it's not, not. Everything, no. And so that that's just height as one example. So you take, you know, so so many of our sports that we have are so complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, tracking objects, right. anticipation. How much faster Twitch, yeah. Not not only that. I mean, it's not like, um, you know, music where you know you're playing like this phenomenally complicated piece. Um, but in sports, you've actually got someone else who's trying to make you perform worse and yeah. get in the way of you mm-hmm. actually doing what mm-hmm. you want to do. So that's, and so now you're thinking about what they're thinking. You know, it's so it's massively so complex. complicated. Yeah. And, and on top of that, you've got to be extremely fit. Um, you've got to, you know, have refined skills that are you know really specific mm-hmm. to your sport. Um, so how do you, how do you capture all that in a definition of this? Oh, is, yeah. This one is definition talent. of one right? statement. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So, but in your model, you you have five components or like five pillars to the model of talent, right? So the first one is innate, which means like it's said like, okay, you do have in your nature something that would make you talented. Right. And that's not out of, the, out of the question. Yeah, so that's... Yes. It's not all genetics, but it, it has an innate... There's uh, an innate component, component to, it. to it. Yeah, and so is... Um, yeah, if... By its very definition, there there should be mm. there has to be some kind of an innate component to it, um, um, yeah. And I think I think the important thing there that's that's really important to stress is that is that I, 
And I think, I think it's, I don't know necessarily exactly why, but I think maybe it's because of how we talk about talent. Yeah. It's like, you just say, yeah, they have it. He's talented. Right. She's talented. Or you can't teach that. You hear that all the time. And and you talk about it in this really kind of singular kind of concept way that, and I think that's maybe the reason that people say, well, you either have talent or you don't. But just because something's, there's a genetic origin to it, um, you can have degrees of talent. Right. All the Mm. way from you are just chock full of awesome talent to you have none with everything in between spectrum. It's a spectrum. And so and I think that's much more useful and I think that's, you know, much more um, productive than just thinking about it as an either or. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's nature or nurture. Um, It's both. And and if you look at talent, it's not that you have it or you don't have it. There's there's degrees of talent Mm -hmm. Um, and. Because, yeah, let's say like in, in the NBA, for example, obviously the NBA is the elite of the elite of the general population. But within that elite of elite, there's also still, mm. you know, a big difference in talent. You see oh, that yeah. like LeBron James probably has as many practice hours as as the average NBA player. Yeah. But potentially. Not, but, but I mean, yeah. like, you know, given their history where they played college and well, yeah. he, he didn't play in college. No, he didn't play college. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but still, if you look at the trajectory of an NBA player, I mean, they're very similar. Oh yeah. And I mean, and you could look at, you know, is this talent? Maybe not, but I mean, you know, there's, you, you look at what percentage in a, in pro athletes make it to the hall of fame or yeah. get awards, exactly, like MVP, yeah, right? There's, there's, it's, it's obvious. There are players mm-hmm. that are, that are better than other players. Mm-hmm. What's the origin of that? That's, that's the question. That's the complicated yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, that innate component is an important part, but I think the important thing is that it's not it's not an either or, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's like height. You can look at a normal distribution, right? So there's going to be a really small number of the population that's, um, that has like, you know, very short height. There's going to kind of be like a, you know, meaty middle average height groups around those values. And there's also going to be an extreme tail, right? That's the exceptionally, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's height, mass, yeah, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like there's going to be people at that tail end. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then the next component is multidimensional. So by multidimensional, like, do you mean that physiological and psychological? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea that, um, well, it's kind of, you know, to go back to the height example, like it's, it's height is important, but is it everything? Mm -hmm. You know, probably not. And so Mm -hmm. there's, you know, talent is probably going to be multidimensional. It's not just measuring one thing. Yeah. Um, and, and seeing if that predicts performance and, you know, expertise later on. Um, and, and yeah, there's, and I think that's intuitive, but I think there's, there's also some evidence to support that. So, um, you know, a PhD student at York university, um, Katie Robinson did a, a really cool systematic review, um, of, of talent ID in sport and, and looked at all these different studies, you know, for across a couple of decades of, of what are the, what studies were best able to actually predict who's going to be talented okay. kind of, you know, in a quasi long term, And, um, the studies, most studies just relied on physical measures. So, you know, height and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then a relatively smaller group of studies looked at a, like a, a number, they, they measured a number of different things. And basically the more multidimensional, the, the more you take into account lots of different things, the more better able you are, you're going to be to accurately predict who's going to be a better performer later. Um, And and I think that's because I think talent needs to be multidimensional because performance 
and expertise in sport is multidimensional, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got, you might have some athletes that are, are, are phenomenally naturally fast mm-hmm. and they utilize that in their game in a, in a really specific way. And you might have other athletes who maybe aren't as physically gifted, um, but who develop other strategies to succeed, yeah. right? Like creativity or um, toughness or whatever it is, right? Like it's going to be different in every sport. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be even position, like specific to the position that they play in sport. Um, the point is that there's different ways of being an exceptional performer. And so there should be different combinations of what makes someone talented. Right. It's not just going to be the same recipe for every athlete in every sport. Mm-hmm. Um there's there's different ways of of kind of putting that talent puzzle together. I mean, no wonder there's so many draft busts. Like, well, because it's just so hard to predict who's gonna how talent's gonna develop over time and how it's gonna manifest itself in each sport. Oh, I mean, I mean, you look at you know someone like you know a closed task hundred meter sprint. Yeah, you're just starting from a going to be, and I mean that's oversimplifying. It's way more complicated than that. But someone like Usain Bolt would and probably was like overlooked because he didn't fit the the mold of what people picture as a hundred meter sprinter, which is, you know, a little bit shorter, yeah. you know, barrel Stockier, chested, yeah. massively muscular, big thigh. And here's this tall, yeah. lanky guy and he's just insanely fast. And I mean, he even wanted to play cricket. Like it was just, he was mm-hmm. borderline kind of nudged towards, sprinting. towards sprinting because of how fast he was. Um, and so I think that's, I think there's a lesson there. One, I mean, we have to, consider talent as being a combination of multiple different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then not falling too much into our, our own head about, you know, this is talent, this is not talent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the second that you start doing that, then, then maybe you lose sight of, you know, you, you risk maybe cutting someone or, or seeing someone as not talented when they actually have a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of potential for talent. And that ties like into the next component, which is, talent is dynamic so mm. that means it manifests itself over a long period of time right yeah. but then we still sometimes look at uh, peewee players for example or like little soccer players and say oh this kid's gonna make it this kid's not gonna make it or even there's late bloomers in oh. and people in the pro leagues too like you see people oh. get drafted and then spend years in the minors and all of a sudden they become those amazing players oh yeah and they go undrafted and then they go undrafted i mean it's yeah it's so complicated mm-hmm. there's the the risk is that we we have these kind of biases that that we think are our talent and 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 it's not for no reason um you know the bigger you are like i was saying in a lot of sports relates to performance you're mm. a bigger kid in hockey like you're an 11 year old and you're huge compared to the other kids you're going to be stronger yeah you're probably going to be faster right um and so you, it's hard to blame coaches for picking those kids but what they're, I think it's really important to be clear. What they're doing is not necessarily, I don't think, talent ID. They're they're doing performance ID. They're identifying athletes that are going to be the best performer, that are the best performers at that point in time. Mm-hmm. The rub, and this is where the dynamic piece comes in, is how good of a performer you are at one point in time is not necessarily yeah, an indication you of your talent and how good you're going to be later on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really really challenging especially in sport because you know sports change pretty dramatically like the more serious it gets and and the more levels that you advance right like Mm -hmm. um it's 
you know, like you could look at something like youth rugby to, to kind of the elite international level of rugby. And they're almost different games. Like they're, they're literally played at such a higher skill level, faster, more physical, like it's much more physical. Like it's, it is, it almost becomes a different sport. Mm -hmm. And so you can be, you can forgive people for thinking that they're identifying talent at one stage and it doesn't pan out in the long term because, you know, playing NCAA basketball is going to be wildly different than the NBA. Like literally everyone is going to be better. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, you were, you maybe were in the top 20%, but where does that leave you? Where does that, yeah, where does that put you in the Um, And, you know, the dynamic component is, you know, genes can be expressed, they can turn Mm -hmm. on, they can turn off. Things like life stress, trauma can have massive influences on, on genetic expression. Um, There's all sorts of different things. And, you know, and then you toss in the random things like, or, or, you know, bad luck. Um, you have a fluke injury, mm-hmm. you know, or you're genetically predisposed to a certain type of injury, like, um, like tearing your Achilles or something like that. And that's, you can be genetically predisposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and yeah, there's, and there's been genes isolated for, um, um, how, how sensitive you are to uh, getting concussion and how fast you recover mm-hmm. from concussions. So how much does that play into it? Like how much does that play into, surviving a violent sport like you mm-hmm. know like american football in college and and even making it to to the elite level like you know we're scr- we're just scratching the surface of some of these things yeah. but um but all that all that type of stuff plays in and yeah luck luck too i mean you could just have a f- fluky injury or just not be seen by someone or you know all those things make all those types of things yeah, yeah. so but what's like um i think it's important to make the distinction between talent and skill mm. Because uh, I see in sometimes like books like the Talent Code, mm. where like it's a great read, but it has some interesting ideas. But it definitely confuses talent and skill. Whereas it says like uh, the more you practice, the the layer of myelin will build up around your axons, and you can process information faster. But that's skill. That's skill acquisition. It's learning. It's yeah, ta- it's learning. It's not necessarily talent. Yeah, it? and I think that, and that's, and again, and this is where some of the controversy comes in. So. Is talent something else, something that we can measure, or yeah. is it is the best way to measure it through performance mm-hmm. and and through skill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, jury's out. I mean, but that's that's a really controversial thing. And there's some indication, super early days, but yeah. um, you know, and there was a, a a keynote. I'm forgetting his name now, but there was a keynote at Scaps in um, in uh, St. John's in Newfoundland. Yeah, um, and he was talking about. Um, just the influence of, of genetic variation on how quickly people learn motor skills. And so that there's likely a genetic influence, um, not to say it's one gene, yeah, or, you know, yeah. it's a host of things, but, um, that there's a genetic influence. Um, the genetic variation explains at least a decent percent of how quickly people learn. So, yeah. and, and there are equivalents for, for physical conditioning. Right. So um, Epstein talks about this in the sports gene quite a bit. You know, there are, there are fast responders to training and like aerobic training that they respond really quickly to mm-hmm. training. And so they can they can progress more quickly where someone else can still get to that same level of, of fitness and, and performance in something like middle distance running or long distance running. But it's mm-hmm. going to take them longer. Right. You know, to build up that level of, of conditioning. And so the, the analogy, you know, that that keynote was saying was that the, there might be something really similar with learning. Um, there might also be, you know, a genetic influence on on just who is able to even engage in the really hard practice it takes. You know, no one's saying practice isn't important. You can't take, no, you exactly. know, I can't just go 
go outside right now, you know, take someone off the street and just, and just, you know, put them in game four tonight for the Raptors. And, you know, mm-hmm. despite all I mean, that, might be your only hope tonight. Oh, and even if I had a measure of talent that was, it might be our only hope. It could be good. Uh, the uh, if even if I had the the most amazing measure of talent, yeah, right. Like I could do this test, and wow, this person has talent for basketball. They still, I still can't just put them in an NBA game, and they're going to be amazing. They're still going to need to train. They're still going to need to be in shape, right? Like mm-hmm. to say that you know you so you still need all those things um the question is you know do you can you have someone that's going to be um that's more able to engage in that type of training either because of their personality mm. you know their you know their rage to master or their level of obsession with the sport that they're in has um, there been any work to to suggest like um exactly the degree of how much genetics has to do with your response to to practice and how fast you can advance because that's pretty hard to measure too and it takes like a, it has to be like longitudinal over it's hard to measure and especially because um because it's so hard to control like learning environments mm-hmm. and especially i mean you can do it in a laboratory you have people come in every day and and every day you practice memorizing more numbers in a list or you mm-hmm. practice right like a typing task or mm-hmm. something like that and you can control it really really rigidly um But that's very different than, you know, practicing a complex sports skill, especially in, in sports that are that are team sports where you have to practice with other people. Like your performance yeah. is is going to depend on how well everyone mm-hmm. else is doing, too. Again, not for LeBron, but yeah, yeah. but okay. um, but yeah, so so it's 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 a really hard thing to do um, to actually like control that practice environment mm-hmm. and to see who's you know, who's performing better. Um, there's some thoughts out there that, um, you know, that. there's debate about this that, you know, that people are just have naturally good movement patterns. Um, but there is, there's an idea out there that, um, the, that, you know, we all have different styles of walking, right. Yeah. Handwriting. Like we all have these unique kind of ways, you know, you and I can both walk up and down the street and we're both doing the same thing, but it could look different, like based on our gait and mm-hmm. our style and that type of stuff. Um, And so there's the same idea that, that some kids might be born with a, with a, a natural movement pattern. Like there's their way of doing a movement is so perfectly suited to a slap shot or mm. to skating. Like, and it's, and, and is that a genetic expression? Is it, it's just how it's, it's how their like uh, motor coordination has self-organized mm-hmm. itself. Um, is that like innate talent? Like, are those the kids sure. who are really young that are just, flying all over the ice or up and down the quarter field. Um, and they just move more maturely and in, in a way that it just aligns really well with that particular sport. Um, it's kind of a big question mark, but it's kind of a neat idea. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so that kind of, we kind of like can get into gene doping here from, mm. from talking about genes and, and talent because, A lot of people argue like we should allow gene doping in the Olympics because there's already advantages, disadvantages genetically between people. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's very variation is going to happen. Like a sport is never, um, is never going to be a completely even playing field. Never. Yeah. Um, and, and actually I, I mean, I don't particularly think it should be. I mean, exactly. But that, isn't that the beauty see, of it? It's supposed to see who's going to be the best. Yeah. Um, if ever, you know, it's both in, and some of our best stories are about some of the athletes that maybe haven't been the most gifted, but mm-hmm. who have, 
you know, kind of David versus Goliath type thing. Like they've, they've managed to, yeah. to kind of have an exceptional performance on the day, you know, all those types of stories. Like it's that aspect, you know, if, if we control all aspects of sport and make everyone completely, completely equal, be like what, are, like, what are we looking at? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not a particular fan of of doping and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, not P- PEDs. I mean, I, I I can see the argument behind PEDs, and actually, I don't really see the argument behind making gene doping legal either, because mm. like you still have to have some kind of integrity, I guess. Well, I mean, I th- I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. I, my housemate when I was doing my PhD, uh, Paul Miller, oh. who's a sociologist and 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 yeah philosopher and yeah bon vivant um he is uh you know but he, he talked a lot about doping and and, mm-hmm. and in sport and and you know one of the things that that he would always say is listen the one of the arguments against it is you know it's just it's in the rules it's you know you can say well i was trying to you know recover from injury yeah, and all this stuff, and stuff. but the, you know. like the only thing is like everyone knows the rules going going into the game True. um and that's kind of the only argument against mm-hmm. it or that, you know, one of the things that we would talk about um, in terms of gene doping, the only thing there, and I mean, and it's similar to, to kind of doping in sport, like, like regular PEDs, like, you know, steroids and all that type of stuff. Um, you know, because of like the nature of gene expression and it's not just that, you know, like I said, that you have a gene for one thing like how a gene functions might also depend on how another gene in its neighborhood is functioning and another gene and another Mm. gene and another gene. And then what environment are you in? So it's this huge cascade. And so you start messing with things, right? And you start, okay, well, we've got this gene for this and let's do this and let's modify this person's genetic makeup or their gene expression and they'll be a better athlete what are the side effects? Like what are the Mm. knock on effects? Um, You know, it's, you can do kind of wide scaling gene mapping type studies where you're trying to find, you know, specific genes, but you know, there's like arguably mapping the human genome has actually taught us more about how much we don't know about the human genome and that there's so many things that we don't know about how Mm -hmm. things interact. So again, just like you can't give a genetic test to, to some some parents kid to tell them that they're going to make it to the nhl you know what are the risks of of manipulating Modifying. gene expression in, in elite level athletes mm. like what's what's that going to do right. um what's the what's the extent of the benefit i mean what if what we've seen from sport so far is that people will probably do almost anything for for, for an the advantage extra right um but you know there's there's probably some danger there and there's a lot That's that true. we don't know um yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point because it's like if, if we don't understand genetics entirely, and I don't think we, we ever will, considering how well, complex. You know, yeah, I mean, but not not in this, not for a few decades at least. Well, we'll see. I mean, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with technology. Like, if yeah. you, you know, not not that I'm a computer scientist or anything, but if things like quantum computers mm. come along and their computing power is just like infinitely higher than anything we've ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what kind of capability is that going to give us, right. you know, to look at the human body and, and what we're capable of, No, the uh, only you know, like that's, you yeah. know, who knows, like who knows where we're going to be. I mean, right. um, yeah. I mean, the only reason I said like, I don't know if we ever will is because, 
you look at other fields like for example psychology or, or nutrition or microbiology or anything i mean they're still advancing advancing they've been around mm. way longer than genes and will continue to advance because yeah. there's always more to know but yeah that's a good point about gene doping it's like if you don't know the consequences of especially you know the negative consequences of gene doping then yeah i mean what, yeah, what can happen i mean you know yeah. can you um you know, influence gene expression and and increase your risk of cancer or, or maybe influencing one gene because of its interactive effect, like decreases your performance in another area. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's, who knows? Like it's, there's a lot of unknowns there and, um, you know, sport and training is complicated enough as it is. You know, the risk is that people are going to reach for, reach for whatever they can, but, um, well, but maybe yeah, it'll be know. it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, yeah. the reality is that whatever is, you know, the performance enhancing fashion of the day is way ahead of what most people think, and is way ahead of the people testing it. Right. So who knows what's happening? You know, the Tour de France starts in a couple. You know, who knows what what those athletes are doing? Yeah. Um. Who knows? Who knows what people are willing to do? Um. Especially in the popular. Um, you know, big money sports where there's there's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of money and a lot of resources for the athletes. It's true. You, well, you see it in MMA all the time because in the UFC, there's uh, you see hired USADA to mm. test the athletes, and they show up at your house any time of the day, right. whenever they want, as many times as they want. Yeah. And um, I'd be willing to bet there's a lot getting away with, with cheating. Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot of fighters getting away with cheating because. There's always going to be ways around it. Well, and and even if you have people showing up and testing you, like you see Icarus, that documentary. I mean, the science of tapering and masking the effects Mm -hmm. of of um, of some substances, like the science. There's people out there. They're not just figuring that out by accident. Like there's people Mm -hmm. who are. I don't want to know if it's their career, but I mean, they're they're devoting their time and their efforts to figuring out how to how to how to cheat cheat and how to not get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, you throw on top of that, I was, I forget the specifics, but there was, um, uh, I remember there was an article a while ago reading that there's, um, that there's some, um, uh, subpopulations, I believe, I think it was China. I'm not sure. Don't quote mm-hmm. me. But I, anyways, there's some subpopulation, um, who, because of their genetic makeup, their body masks the presence of things like anabolic steroids or really? some performance enhancing drugs. So you could test them till you could have the best test till the cows come home, but their body is, is literally has like a, uh, a mutation or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a unique genetic makeup that, that masks the effect, like the, the presence the of presence the substances of... in your body. Huh. Um, and so well, what do you, what do you do? What do you do now? Do you ban True. those? Do you, do you test everyone and ban those people from mm-hmm. sport? No, no, you can't, you can't do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's those types of things. It's they're one that I think they're really important discussions. Mm-hmm. And there's some of the reasons why I think, you know, we keep going more and, you know, sports sciences, kinesiology is always advancing in science, but, um, you know, disciplines like philosophy of sport, um, sociology of sport. Yeah. Like we arguably need more of these people to help contribute to these debates because it's only going to get more complicated. Um, you know, I've even heard some people say, at its peak of doping in the Tour de France, yeah. that it was actually like the most uh, even playing field that's ever existed. Because if everybody doped, because everyone was able to dope to a certain level, and as long as you were below whatever, say the score was eighty, mm-hmm. then then you're fine. And so everyone 
on this one measure of aerobic mm-hmm. capacity was at the same level. Now, is that fair? Is that what we want sport to be? That's different right. discussion. But, you know, to some people, it is the way of making sport more fair. Um, but then what's going to... But then what's the, yeah, because if then doping next? becomes the next? even what's playing next? field, like, then there's going to be something else that's going to make it uneven again. Yeah. And who knows what that's going to be, right? Yeah. So and um, so the last component of your model was that talent is symbiotic, which means like mm-hmm. interacts with with the with the environment. And we've talked about that, but you mentioned uh, you give an example of uh, bobsleigh in Germany, mm-hmm. and how you know bobsleigh is huge in Germany, and you see a lot of uh, Olympians or a lot of champions come out of there. But it doesn't mean that Germans are just talented at it, because if they were these same bobsleigh athletes, if they were born somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say in England or yeah. or in in in, uh, in the U.S., they'd be playing rugby, for example, or or football because it's power based. Yeah. So, but w- would it be fair to say that Brazilians are talented in soccer because bobsleigh is like a somewhat of a relatively unpopular sport compared to <laughs> oh man, the, you know, making enemies in the bobsleigh no, no, world. I mean, eh? Don't go to, to Calgary. Right? Man. <laughs> If we're going to talk about like soccer, for example, or mm. basketball or something like that, you know, you're not going to have the participation rates that you do have in, in those sports. But you still see soccer in, in Brazil, for example, never miss the World Cup, have the most number, like highest number of World Cup won. Yeah. I think there's a couple di- I think there's a couple different things there. I think the, f- the first thing is that, um, and this is something that, you know, me, me and Joe have, have talked about before is that, and, and others also actually, but, um, is that, you know, like nature is, is nothing like, if not a pretty like picky and frugal thing. Right. And so yeah. is talent, like, are you specifically talented at soccer or do you have, are you, do you have these um, subsets of skills and abilities and characteristics that predisposes you to being talented at soccer or a sport similar to soccer? So whatever okay. environment you grow up in, you know, as long as that activity is there, if you have those, building blocks, so to speak, that you're going to be talented, you know, in, in that sport right. um, versus you could equally be, you know, Epstein talks about this, that, you know, the, the, um, the people, you know, with a particular genetic makeup are, are track and field athletes in, in, um, uh, in Jamaica. Um, and they've got a predisposition towards uh, an anaerobic uh, muscle system that increases the, the percentage of fast switch muscle. Fiber, yeah. That type of stuff. Um, and he says, you know, like these, these same people do live in the United States, but they're playing football. They're playing American mm-hmm. football. They're not all going into track and field. And so there's cultural popularity might dictate, you know, what sport you end up being talented at. Um, and so there's that kind of aspect of the environment that to some extent it's, mm-hmm. you know, what's the culture, what's the environment, what's important in that environment. Um, you know, and then where does talent kind of fit on top of that? What is, and again, it comes back to what is talent? Is it mm-hmm. um, your characteristics, uh, base capabilities, um, how fast you learn, how hard you're willing to work, you know, right? Like all those types right. of things. Um, the other aspect that I think is important about that symbiotic piece is that what we consider talented at one point in time might not always be what we consider talented at another point in time. So I'll give a shout out to, to Yurik Shore, mm-hmm. who mentions this literally every single time we talk about sport, every single time we talk about sport, he talks about Dirk Nowitzki. Oh, um, he loves Dirk Nowitzki. He, oh, does Yurik ever love yeah. Dirk Nowitzki? Like life-size posters on his walls. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, Definitely but, has Dirk Nowitzki car seats in his, oh. you know, those like we have custom ones, like, 
Ronaldo and, and Michael Jordan, LeBron, like car seats. Oh yeah. Yeah. He definitely has one of those. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Um, I, you know, probably all his pack passwords are like Dirk something or mm-hmm. like, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, but you look at someone like Dirk Nowitzki. here's a seven footer. Right. And when he was kind of coming up and, and developing as, as, as a basketball player, um, at that time in the NBA and arguably in the NCAA also, but definitely in the NBA, like that was, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, you've got real big men in the NBA, like Shaquille O'Neal, you've got Hakeem Olajuwon. And these were post players who lived down low and had a real short game mm-hmm. and played a physical game. A lot of these big guys, big seven footers. Yep. Um, and along comes Dirk Nowitzki and one of his coaches encourages him to learn how to shoot three pointers and to, and to play a much more diverse game. And so he, that's an example of literally changing what talent looks like for a seven footer. Like it expands, I would argue it expands the range of what talent can be for a player of that size. Right. Now it's swung all the way over there. I would argue, you know, we probably don't really have any true centers in the game anymore. Like not like Shaq and, right. and you know, Patrick. It's Ewing a dying breed. If, if there are any, well, I mean, there are big guys, mm-hmm. but they're being, but not in that specific role. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, being encouraged or, or mm-hmm. maybe even people are looking for big men who can shoot better. Who knows? Right. Like it's probably a combination of both of instruction and, um, and skill. Um, but what talent looks like for a seven footer in the NBA now is very different than it was in the, in the, you know, early nineties, eighties, seventies, sixties, right. It's, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at something like, um, whether you're right or left-handed in tennis, being left-handed could be a massive advantage mm-hmm. in tennis, especially when most of the people are right-handed because the right-handers... They haven't seen as many left-handers. Haven't, you haven't faced them, they're, so they're, they're not They're more to rare, right? Yeah. Um, but they also hit the ball to different places in mm-hmm. the court, right? If if you're hitting mostly forehand, the ball's going to go yeah. to different places. Um, and so where you, where, you know, if you're right-handed and you're used to hitting to someone's backhand, you're now hitting to a lefty's forehand mm-hmm. and, and you're about to eat the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people start looking for left-handed players that's now talented okay that's part of being talented in tennis and then all of a sudden there's all these lefties there's more lefties around Mm -hmm. and oh it's not that big of an advantage anymore and so now what's going to happen well probably more righties Mm -hmm. right and so even what talent is is very symbiotic with the environment with culture with um just trends fads in sport what's popular what's not popular um, what we think um, an athlete should be or should look like in a specific sport or what um, a characteristic or a skill set should look like. And so talent can be changing. Like, and so, and that's another really hard thing. Like, and so if you're, if you're like, um, uh, if you're like a competitive coach or or something and and you're picking athletes right now, you're, there's a chance that you're maybe your idea of what's talented is not even going to be what's talented, what we consider talent to yeah, be in like years. 10, 15 years when that athlete is, mm-hmm. is, is eligible to, you know, to be an elite level athlete. So again, brutally hard. So what do you do? Yeah. Right. Like how do you, how do you keep our sports systems flexible enough to accommodate talent that might, that the definition might change? Like you said, like it, it might, um, it might be something that, that we don't see early on mm-hmm. and that shows up later. Um, 
you know, one, I was reading an article a while ago that I thought was really cool about Chris Draper and how, you know, he was someone that no one thought was that talented. Like he's, you know, journeyman and kind of, you know, semi-pro leagues and American hockey league. I think it was American hockey league. And, and someone just happened to see him play a game and he won something crazy, like over 20 face-offs in that game or something. And he said, like, can you, yeah, do you yeah. think you could do that in the NHL? And of course, of course right? he's going to say yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah. And there's someone that, you know, no one, you know, in all fairness, like no he, and he had a great career in the yeah. NHL, but you know, before that, would anyone have said, Oh yeah, this guy, I'm going to mm-hmm. bet on this guy long-term. Yeah. You see that. And, and like, for example, Andrew Shaw, he was passed up on in the draft, I think twice, like he was at least once, but probably twice. He entered the draft once, got passed out on and second time. And the third time Chicago took him. And, uh, now everyone's looking for an Andrew Shaw who was like, maybe not now because he's kind of been a shithead lately. But, um, <laughs> but like early on, you know, everybody's looking for an Andrew Shaw where it's like this small feisty kid who can mm. like score goals and also get in your face. And, and, um, yeah, that's why it's so hard to predict because if it was so easy, everybody yeah. would win all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. If it was easy to predict. Yeah. I mean, everyone, you know, some of these sports, you know, you're talking about soccer in Brazil. Yeah. There's no shortage of money being spent. Yeah. Kids are, you know, some of these kids are developing the favelas and, you know, in, yeah. in the ghettos and stuff, mm-hmm. but you know, in whether it's the FA in, in England and the Bundesliga, whatever, like they're spending millions and millions of dollars every year. Yeah. Um, they good chance. They might've figured this out if it was that easy to just figure out mm-hmm. this is how we identify talent. But yeah. And one, one more thing, like, uh, about the being left-handed in tennis. Mm. So it's also been shown in MMA where they call it like mm. the fighting hypothesis. Yeah. Where because, or like being left-handed is such a minority in, in the general population, but the reason it hasn't been evolutionary, evolutionarily like um, eliminated, I guess, or like the reason we still have left-handers today mm. is because when men fight each other, being left-handed gives you an advantage mm. and so that's why this trait has continued to to live on and hasn't been eradicated mm. and so in in mma when you compete at lower levels of mma below the ufc like in the regional circuits and all that mm. left-handers have an advantage and it's been shown to give them quite a big advantage but mm. then when they step into the ufc where everybody is talented or everybody is skilled and everyone has faced multiple people in their lives and our experience, you, you don't see that advantage anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's like, it's kind of like that, what I was saying earlier about when you go up a level, yeah. it's like the sport has changed. Mm-hmm. It's like all of a sudden, what was an advantage right. is not an advantage anymore. Right. You can't, just because you were the biggest kid, you know, uh, when you were 13, all of a sudden now at the next level, mm-hmm. everyone's big. Yeah. So, and, and so what's, what's going to set you apart now? Mm-hmm. If you, so if you were just, I was, you know, you're a lefty and, and you're just pummeling guys because, you have this significant advantage and all of a sudden you get to a point where what you've relied on, what's been your talent Mm -hmm. is maybe it's still not going to take you. Maybe it still gives you, maybe it's still a part of your talent, but how does that change? Mm -hmm. How do you adapt? Um, So my next next question about that is you can lose skill, right? Skill can be lost. It can be acquired. Yeah. 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 I mean, learn, learning is like mm-hmm. learning is, um, is bi-directional and linear, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, and just like development, you can, um, go one way keep, or another. You can go one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But can you lose talent? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. So if, um, if, if our, you know, that what, what, uh, 
what Joe and and me and Jurg have uh, have written in our in this model paper that you know knock on wood it'll it'll come out I don't want to knock on your cheap equipment here but I'm I'm afraid it you know yeah. it'll break it no very expensive uh, though, very though. expensive very expensive high end stuff um, but if if that dynamic aspect is mm. is accurate if that's a legitimate aspect of talent and sport then there's the potential that just like talent can emerge later in development can it go away. I don't know. The, te- the really challenging, I can't say it's not possible. The challenging thing is the longer you go on in development, the more experience you accumulate, right? The more practice, mm-hmm. um, the more knowledge and expertise about your specific activity you develop, right? And so how do you separate that, that nurture component from the natural side? And that would be really tricky. Like how do you... Because there, I mean, there are obviously athletes, you know, speed, strength, things like that will, will always know, be will, will decrease as, as you get older in sport. Mm. Um, and, you know, and that might, the influence on your performance might depend on how important some of those types of things are. Um, but while you're doing that, you know, so look at Yarmir Yager. I mean, what, what has he been in the league for like 55 years now? I don't even know. Probably like it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, is he as fast as he was? Is he as strong as he was when he was in, in his 20s? Absolutely. There's, all, there's no way. Mm-hmm. Probably. I don't know for sure, but probably Definitely not, not. as fast. Definitely not as fast. Um, he's been lucky enough to avoid mm-hmm. catastrophic injury. Yeah. Um, he clearly still has the motivation to stay in the game. So where's mm-hmm. that coming from? Definitely takes care of himself in terms of he, he nutrition. Must, he must have to. Um, but his experience and knowledge of the game, like how many plays he's seen, mm-hmm. people moving, patterns of play. It must be unbelievably impressive. Like his knowledge of the game, whether he can express it or not, you right. know, is one thing. But his experience and in, in, in his uh, knowledge of the game from a purely experiential point of playing the game must be through the roof. His brain must be ahead of his body. Well, like a step ahead of his body because he's, you got to slow down as you age. And yeah. so like you're processing the game so quickly and you know what's going to happen. You read the next play, but your body can't get you there. And so, so the challenging part there is, so he has all this experience that he's built up over this incredibly long career and in the, in, at the highest level of hockey. Mm-hmm. Right. And how do you separate that, that experience from the innate talent part? Right. And so let's say hypothetically your innate talent can go away. I don't know. So yeah, somewhere. Or I don't know what that would look like. I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, but, but then how do you, how do you then control for the fact that they've been a student of the game and played in so many games and practiced for so long and seen so many players and, and, and been involved in the game for that long? How do you, how do you get rid of that? And so that's, that's like yeah. one of the really, I would say the really challenging things to, mm-hmm. to your ideas like, how would you know what's what? And that kind of comes back to the challenge of what is talent. How do you know what it is? So philosophical. How, do, is it, how does it, well, yeah, I'm a smart guy. And yeah. you, you give me a drink. So yeah, I mean, yeah. my, my <laughs> mind is, is running now. Um, but no, but that's, that's the challenge. Like, what is, like, what is it? And, yeah. and what's the balance? And, and the tricky thing is, is that balance might be different for two different players. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, that's definitely fair. You know? And you look at athletes, good athletes will adapt as mm. their career goes on. Like Michael Jordan 
you know, in his arguably in his his second three championships, um, was a different player than in his first three championships or before he even won championships. Um, and so he adapted his game, he changed his game. Um, is there something there like a obsessive and um, part of his personality that allowed him to do that. That's, mm. And that personality is like an innate part of his talent. Um, who knows? Or was he a type of person that can learn things very quickly? And so his rate of learning, yeah, I don't know. Right. Um, all I know is it's crazy. It's, 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 yeah. it's crazy. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like, there is one thing that you hear that these type of people have in common by these type of people. I mean, like Jordan, um whoa, like, whoa what do you mean these type of people like no. yeah like him and then everyone blown <laughs> but like jordan and like the, the people were like the best of the best mm. in every field like they they sometimes have and i read this paper about one time they were like they display some not psychopathic tendencies mm. and 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 personality i mean they're not psychopaths but like they they have some of those traits it's it's funny i was i was uh i was literally talking about this with my father-in-law this uh this weekend so he's he's just a sports nut like yeah. he just loves all sports and, and granted most of his sports that he's obsessed with happened before the second world war but he's, <laughs> he's he loves his sports and he loves talking about sports this is one of the things that we were talking about and he was at the first nhl game ever oh yeah, yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think he yeah he was a ball boy at, <laughs> at wimbledon the first year it was opened or something um this is amazing i was like i'll make can we have another podcast where i just make fun of bruce for like sure. uh, like an hour and a half i'd love is that he gonna listen? uh well he doesn't know how to access podcasts so it's no i'll, I'll make him subscribe yeah um no, but we, so so it's interesting. You bring it up, and and just recently, the this you know big uh, study, this Great British Medalist Project came out, and one of the things that they were doing was trying to understand who um, British uh, medal Olympic medal winners who who are these people? How did they get to win an Olympic medal? Mm-hmm. What environments did they grow up in? What kind of training did they do? What was their life experience? And one of the things that they did was. Um, was fill out these questionnaires, um, kind of personality type inventories. And some of the things that some of these medalists scored high on were ratings, you know, that are characteristic of psychopaths um, and to a certain degree sociopaths. But um, was it like being very low in agreeableness, for example, like compassion? So um, uh, very willing to... um, uh, disregard other people's um, feelings Emotions, and yeah. wishes. Yeah. Like you're very focused on yourself and your own success to a certain mm-hmm. extent, willing to sacrifice social relationships and yeah. very willing to um, sacrifice other people in, in order to, to get to where you have to go. Mm. Um, and so that's quite an interesting idea. Um, it really fly, you know, a lot of times we see these athletes and we, we see them as these amazing athletes and we think, wow, they must be great people. I want to hang out with them. Mm. Yeah, because no. we project these things. They're so good at one thing; they must yeah. be cool people. Um, and this is again, it's kind of early days in that type of stuff. But there are some indications in business that that it, you know business executives share, share similar, sometimes characteristics or inventors, things like that. Um, and so, it's a really interesting idea. Um, the reason I was talking about it with uh, my father-in-law is that he's reading this. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's it, the book is it's 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 got to be like like four or five inches. It's the biggest book Thick. i've ever seen it's and this is biography on uh ted williams mm-hmm. who's arguably one of the best baseball players of all time 
and the last guy to hit over 400 in, in major league baseball. Um, and so here's this guy who is, you know, a, without a doubt, a hall of famer, like one of the, the best batters in the history of the game. And, and he's telling me that one of the things that he's learned reading this biography is also turned out to be like literally one of the truly most terrible human beings of all time. Oh, wow. He was incredibly abusive um, to his family, to his wives, children, things like that. Mm-hmm. He was incredibly mean and cruel to, um, uh, to the press, all these different types of things. Um, like really like a nasty piece of work by all accounts. Um, but is that part of it? I don't know. Like there's, there's that kind of nastiness part. And there's kind of the selfishness part. And so, I mean, again, this probably all exists on a spectrum, you yeah. know, kind of type thing. Because you don't but, have to be selfish to excel in sports because well, and most you, of the time it's all about you. And you've got to be obsessed about you yeah. and what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? And so um, there's a great interview. Um, Simon Whitfield, who is a Canadian triathlete, and yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, won the first um, uh, gold medal at the Olympics for triathlon the year it was introduced. Um, he was giving a talk at, um, this, uh, uh, triathlon event. It was before the Toronto triathlon a few mm-hmm. years ago. So he's given a, a kind of talk to doing an interview in front of all the people who were signed up to do it the next day. And so he was talking about, um, he was talking about what it takes to make it as an elite level triathlete in sport. And so one of the questions he got was, you know, do you think you could make it now? Like, do you think you've got what it takes to beat, you know, if you could rewind the clock, could you beat the kids that are doing it now? He's like, no. And so he starts talking about the Brownlee brothers, who are two brothers who live in, in Northern England, um, who are arguably at the Olympic distance, probably, you know, the best male triathletes in the world. Like they're just, mm-hmm. they, they've just dominated Olympic distance triathlon in the last couple of years. And the thing that he said about them, he said that he'd gone and visited them uh, over the holidays to kind of, you know, talk with them and, and stuff. And, and he said, literally everything they do is about triathlon. All they think about all the time. Their life just revolves around it. Revolves around it. They're they're obsessed. And he and he talked about an American female triathlete, same thing. And he said, you know, is it, is this healthy? You know, and when Whitfield said, no, probably not. But is it what it takes to make it in elite sport now? Probably. Probably. And so and so there's there's an important point there. Like how important is that personality component mm-hmm. to achieving and to being talented in, in something that's so competitive, we're such a small like sliver of people get to make it to the top level, mm-hmm. let alone be the best at that mm-hmm. level, right? Like that's a whole other ball game. Um, and so it's really interesting. So yeah, I think that's a whole really interesting area for research is looking more into those types of things. Um, and you know, how does that figure into if talent is multidimensional, like how important is that dimension? Mm-hmm. To, to being talented at something so like you hit on the a really important topic where all you have to think about is triathlons you know or like hockey or football whatever it is that you're trying to make it at so but when so but then how do you fit sampling sports in that equation because mm-hmm. you know there's sampling there's specialization and then you know if you sample more you know you develop more uh like physical literacy over time and yeah also helps you build more social skills and whereas if you specialize you know it could you could increase your chances of burnout and yeah. injuries. i mean I, I think there's a there's a couple compelling arguments for for sampling mm-hmm. um on the one hand it depends what you think the purpose of sport is so very very few people end up becoming high performance athletes right. and 
and, and experts in sport. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very small percentage. And so there, there's a, it's, and I think it's a fair argument. What, it, what should be the purpose of sport and society? Is it to make better kids and to uh, have them have, uh, influence positive development and that they're healthy, thriving, good, you know, uh, members of society? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it to develop elite level performers? If it's both, how do we do that? And which should which side should we err on? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a, a fair question to ask. And so I think that's one thing, you know, maybe in favor of the, of the sampling side. The other thing that I think is pretty important is, um, you know, the the kind of motivational aspect. Even if you're obsessed about something, like you, there, I think there has to be some component there that that's tied to motivation and, um, and whether it's loving a sport and mm-hmm. being obsessed with it, and how much those overlap. Um, maybe that's only possible to find out what you really love in sport if you if you try a number of different ones versus you're just put into one thing from an early, uh, from an early age and you're told this is what you're going to do. Maybe that early intrinsic motivation enjoyment, maybe that's a really important kind of seed that ends mm-hmm. up sustaining people through when it gets tougher and when it's maybe less right. enjoyable and I I don't know like there's there's that type of argument. Um you know, there's other arguments like if, you know being more well-rounded in terms of your motor skills. Is there a transfer? Can there be transfer between sports or um, you know sports that have similar patterns of play or you know invasion sports? Mm-hmm. Um, can you learn from the different things and apply them? You know, that's a you know it's an argument. I'd, you know, there's the transfer will be limited a little bit. There, there research has shown there can be some transfer and similar tasks, but um, you know domain-specific expertise is still what's going to trump things at the end of the day um yeah injuries all those types of things um the reality is for some sports is it possible in some sports based on when you the peak age of performance Mm -hmm. female gymnastics it's probably not possible um tennis you could argue maybe also um yeah the the other thing that i think is really challenging that I think, and and I and I actually think people are starting to get into this right now, and I think it's a really cool area for research and for for thinking about sampling versus specializing in sport. Is um, is again just like nature nurture. It we probably can't just think of sampling and not sampling, or mm-hmm. specializing and sampling, or whatever. Um, there's probably way more gray area that's actually happening. In it's not there. a one size fits all. Yeah, there is a colleague that that was mentioning a case study that that uh, that they did on. Um, on a young female athlete. And if you, if you just looked at the number of sports, this athlete was doing at a really young age, they were hundred percent sampling, right? Like there's oh, wow, she's playing, I don't know, whatever it was four sports or something like that. Right. Okay. Sampling Bravo. When you dig a little bit deeper, it's actually, this athlete was so insanely performing at a high level in each of those sports. This athlete was actually specializing in four sports. In four sports. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? Like in volume and in intensity and, you know, it's not like deliberate play. They're not mm-hmm. just having a good, like, this is like the top level of these four sports for this athlete's age. So there's clearly, this is also like a spectrum, right? This is also areas where there can be, and where do our top athletes exist? Are they sampling? Or are they really specializing in some of those sports or all of them? I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's a really cool thing to start looking at. I know that, um, 
uh, you know, the students at York that are looking at this, um, at Michigan State University, there's there's some really switched on grad students um, working with Carl Erickson uh, there and um, and with Joe and, and Jess at York mm-hmm. University. They're starting to look more at, uh, and in Europe too, there's some, some really cool people in Europe doing this. Um, they're starting to look a little bit more at the detail. Like it's not just, you know, how many sports you play and, and, and when, like there's, there's a lot more rich stuff in, you know, what level are you at? Like, what's it really, how many hours are you really putting in? Mm-hmm. How much are you really practicing? You know, like, and, and I think, I think we're going to find out some really neat things about athlete development when, when we start to, to get some of that data and, and check that out. Because it's true. Because even when sometimes we talk about practice, even practice at a high level. So, for example, there's a study in junior hockey. I think it was uh, junior A, where they found that uh, the players were not were, were kind of like stationary or like you know not moving or mm. doing anything for about forty percent of the practice time, something like that, mm. like between forty and sixty. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. So it's like you think it's practice, like you know, learning hardcore. Uh, dedication and uh, no, it's the classic. It's the classic gym class. You look at a gym yeah, class; half the class is standing around, right? And, even and, at junior A, which is yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 I think and I think that's an area where sports science is is going to have you know really profound influences, mm-hmm. um, and it also influences how we measure that nurture component. Um, yeah, you had a one hour practice, but how much were you really practicing? Yeah. Um, and how important is that downtime in a practice to actually consolidating learning and reflecting on the drill that you've just done, right? right. It's not, it's right. not unimportant. You, you don't want to be going hundred percent all the time. No. And so, and so I think, you know, just bean counting the hours mm-hmm. is, you know, that's been you know the method for the most part, hopefully as technology gets better, um, as you know, we've got software now where it can code behavior and practice in ways that that's been, e- it's never been easier. Right. Like you can you can just code a huge array of practice of behaviors within a practice for athletes. Um, and then so it could tell you like wh- how much an athlete's putting in, for example. Like, oh, yeah, we've got we've got um, we've got some some software in our lab that that's super cool that you can. Let's say you videotape a practice. You can you can you can create a coding system that codes every skill the athlete's working on. You can code how much time they're active versus inactive. Mm. You can code, you can code all sorts of things, how much time they're interacting with their coach for feedback, how much time, you know, and not only how much time, but how often. So you can count it and you can count the, the amount of total time. We can do all sorts of stuff. It's never now, an easier study. It's it, no, it, it's fantastic, right? And so, and so, as as we get more complicated, like it's mm-hmm. we have the challenge that it becomes more challenging to crunch down that information into like a deliverable like nugget. But what 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 all these tools are going to let us do is understand, you know, what's optimal, mm-hmm. or maybe even hopefully one day, what's optimal for which athlete, right? Um, what works the best um, and maybe even be able to even use that in identifying athletes for talent ID, you know, like um, there's a really, there's a really cool um, um, scientist that, um, that I was chatting to at um, the, the skill acquisition symposium before NASPA in Montreal a couple of years ago. Um, and he was talking about um, measuring athletes just in terms of, like a fairly simple skill. Like I think it was a f- the, um, like a field goal kick, but in like Irish football or mm-hmm. rugby, I can't remember exactly the sport, but literally just um, measuring the percent of time that the athletes, that different athletes worked on skills they were already good at versus the skills that they were less good at. 
And so there's some, the subpopulation of athletes that they spent more time practicing the things that they weren't good at. Is that the right way to do it though? Yeah. You want to improve. You want to improve. You want to practice mm -hmm. the things that you're, the skills that you don't, you haven't perfected yet. Right. And so is that, is that a measure of talent? Right. Like your awareness of, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you could argue it's also a skill that you can teach that, but, um, but I thought that was a really interesting thing. Um, and you, you know, and the technology makes it a lot easier to capture that type of information or at least to quantify that information Mm -hmm. now. Now, I can't remember what uh, what MMA coach I was listening to, but he was saying something like, you want to work... And again, this is where like the differences come in coaching methods and mm. all that. It's like he, he said, you want to work 80% of the time on the things that you're good at and 20% of the time on things that you're not good at. So that the things that you're good at and what took you to that level that you're at, you know, will stay sharp while you're also... Uh, getting yeah, that's, but I don't know. I, mean, I don't know like, where he's getting those numbers from. I don't know where, I don't he's, know where getting he's getting that numbers. ratio from. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe that ratio is different in different sports. Maybe it's very arbitrary to say 80 20. Well, yeah, who knows? I mean, but maybe like, and it depends in a combat sport, especially MMA, because mm-hmm. athletes will have uh, different skill sets, right? Yeah. In grappling, yeah. you know, versus striking, right? So, you know. Do you need to practice things you're not good at? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe that depends on the opponent you're about to face. Sure. Like maybe if you're about to face an opponent and your, you know, defensive ground game is like really your weak point, but that's their strong point. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you like, you know, so maybe the balance changes depending on the opponent, yeah. depending it's on case by case. Case by case. Um, I mean, that's certainly the approach mm-hmm. that I would take to it from a skill acquisition perspective. Um, but who knows? I don't, I would argue we don't really know what that ratio should be yet, Mm -hmm. but maybe that's something that, you know, that we can find out more about and that, you know, people are, people are doing more and more, um, and you know, whether it's, um, whether it's Ross Pinder, um, and his, his kind of skill assessment drill or Damien Ferro at, uh, you know, and, and their group in Australia doing stuff on, uh, measuring the complexity of practice and how cognitively challenging it is. Mm-hmm. And people are, are developing more and more tools for measuring how hard a practice is, um, the different skill sets within practice. Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, yeah, it's really kind of, you know, taking off right now. And so I think, you know, in five, 10 years, like to see where that whole idea yeah. of measuring skill acquisition is going in practice is going to be really neat. It's going to be really cool. neat. And yeah, you know, and you know, most of that is about improving is optimizing the learning environment to improve learning and performance, but it'd be kind of neat to think about along the way. Is that also going to tell us anything about talent? Right. And to kind of keep that in our minds, like is, is anything in there kind of mm-hmm. useful or can it inform our ideas about innate talent? Who knows? But And, and speaking of practice, this is one more thing before we end is, mm-hmm. um, we we talked a lot about in like uh, blocked versus random practice. I think this would be really cool to mention to the listeners too. Mm-hmm. Is like blocked practice is when you practice a three throw over and over and over again, yep. and you become really good at it yeah. and fast. But yeah, then you decline. Yeah. Whereas yeah, so with block practice, like you say, like it's just like something like uh, practicing a free throw over and over again, mm-hmm. or um, a jump shot on, like on a basketball court from the elbow from fifteen feet. You just you shoot like twenty, thirty, forty mm-hmm. shots in a row. Um, you know, research is pretty clear that you get, you get really good at that skill in practice, 
So it, during the practice itself, your, your performance at that shot would, would go up and get quite a bit better. Um, but then when you take a chunk of time, you come back or you go into a game that your performance dips from, from where you were at your best. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not, um, that block style of practice is not the best for like learning for permanent learning and for really kind of permanently acquiring a skill. It's. Um, more likely to crumble under pressure. So and in stressful game time situations, that, that performance is more likely to suffer. Um, and the flip side of that blocked type of practice is, is random or you know, high contextual interference practice where you practice a variety of different skills. So let's say instead of just shooting you know, 50 shots uh, from 15 feet uh, from the elbow, you take a shot from the elbow, then you practice a pass and then dribble, then lay up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a whole, whole array of, of different skills. In the same drill, you mean? In the same drill. Yeah. In the same yeah. sequence. Like you're not repeating the same, yeah. um, the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. You're mixing it up. Um, really good coaches are already doing this. Like they're, yeah. they're designing really creative drills where, um, you know, you're working on a specific thing, mm -hmm. but in a way that is providing lots of different ways to do it. Um, you're not repeating the same thing over and over again. Everyone's active. So um, what we know about that more random style, it's way harder cognitively. Like it's, um, you make more mistakes during practice. Um, how fast you learn, it's slower. Slower, yeah. Um, but your level of learning at that skill is going to be more permanent. Mm -hmm. So if you come back at a later time or if you measure someone in game, they're still at that same level that they left off in practice. And it seems to be more, um, it seems to hold up better under pressure in a stressful game time situation. So less prone to choking and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it is really hard. Like you're, it's a much more challenging, um, you know, much more challenging type of practice environment for the athletes. Cause you're, you're not, you know, succeeding as much. You're, mm -hmm. you're failing more, you're struggling, but because you're mixing up skills more. It's more relevant for game and games. Well, it, it matches. One idea is that it matches games a lot, yeah. a lot more closely. The other idea is that um, it forces you to, to, to plan and execute each skill. You can't just like lock and load a shot program in your mind and do it mm -hmm. over and over again. That random style forces you to plan and execute different movements and different skills constantly on the go. And so there's an idea that that's better for learning, that it's, that it's more cognitively complex mm -hmm. and that that complexity is better for, yeah, long-term learning and, and so performance. It's the joking under pressure that's so interesting about it too. It's like, okay, I get why it's, it's uh, random practice is more relevant for in-game situations because you're not going to be standing at your sweet spot 50 mm -hmm. times a game scoring points. But this choking under pressure, that's what's interesting. It's like, why does that happen? Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's maybe related to the fact that um, you're used to performing the skill in kind of more complicated ways and that it's mm -hmm. um, that you refine your own me like feedback mechanisms more so that you've got more, a more rich experience to inform, like executing like a, a shot or something like that. Um, yeah. It's, there's all sorts of, of interesting ideas out there about mm -hmm. it, that it's, um, that because you've been more like mentally involved and like awake or conscious, you know, like about mm -hmm. like you're, you're more engaged. That's the, that's the good word. You're more mentally engaged with yeah. everything that you're doing and you have to be, you can't just put it on cruise control and just shoot a bunch of shots. Right. Um, you have to learn more from mm -hmm. each unique experience that that's just better overall. Live in the um, moment. 
Yeah. And if you can toss in, um, in that kind of environment, make it stressful and replicate mm -hmm. game situations, all the better. And so, yeah, that's what a lot of people are, are trying to, to focus on right now. It's pretty cool. Def really definitely. Cool. If you're going to the driving range this spring is, yeah. you know, don't just hit your driver, you know, like 40 times. What I do is I run, I, I, I take a good run up like uh, happy Gilmore. And then I, Oh, that's good. Yeah. I have to practice. I have to practice walking because <laughs> because usually I have to walk about like 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 you know eight thousand yards on one like a par three just because Do of how you bad I am. When you, when you golf? Oh, of course. Really? Yeah, you got to be active. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you do have to be active. Well, welcome on. Well, this was amazing, Nick. Honestly, I can't thank you enough. Oh no, this that. was super fun. Anytime. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed this.